0: Well, welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. I'm your host, Aaron Edwards, and I'm actually joined today by two very special guests. Um, The first guest is uh, Andy Bannister, who might be known to some of you as the co-host, usually. But today, really, I've sort of put him in the sort of guest chair because of our very special other guest, uh, which is Joe Boot of the Ezra Centre. Um, and I'll tell you why those two are kind of interesting peas in a pod uh, in just a moment. But Joe, hello, welcome to the show. Firstly, Andy, actually, welcome to the show, Andy.
1: It's really nice to be welcomed to my own, <laughs> my own podcast. Um, and stuff. It feels very strange and quite intimidating because I'm quite used to, you know, thinking about the well, questions to ask and the, and the way to take it. And I can just sit back and relax. And you can listen. chill if out. If anything goes wrong, if you don't like where the conversation goes over the next hour, I am not responsible. It is purely Aaron. It's usually my fault anyway if a conversation That's goes true.
0: wrong, I would say. That is so, true. yeah. But then we also have Joe. So, welcome, Joe.
2: Thank you, Aaron and Andy. It's uh, great to see you both and uh, a privilege to be on your auspicious uh, show. Thank you for, for, for uh, inviting me. What a can we
0: word. use like that, that as yeah? Can yeah. we use that as social media auspicious <laughs> is our, your kind of blurb for our for our podcast by Joe Boot? Actually,
1: well, I was also thinking by the way uh, I like that word because you know we as listeners of the show will know we we homeschool our kids and a couple of hours ago I was helping with spelling and uh, my eleven year old now is onto more complicated words so I think auspicious is going to go on the list actually. <laughs> and when she complains, I'll go can blame Joe Boot. <laughs> every eleven
0: year old ought to be able to spell auspicious. I, well, I think Joe Boo gets blamed for a lot of stuff, doesn't he? So he does. that's you know. Um, so I, I think um, one of the reasons why we we, we great, it's great to have Joe on, but, but why it's kind of interesting to pair you guys together. I almost thought this could be a whole episode, but we're going to kind of combine this into an Uber episode if we can. Um, is that you're both you both have interesting apologetic stories. You're both basically full time apologists. You lead your own apologetic center ministries, Solas the Center for Public Christianity, and the Ezra Center for is it contemporary Christianity? Is that right, Joe?
2: Well, in North America, it's the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. In in England, it's the Ezra yes. Center for Christian Thought. Hmm.
0: Ezra Center for Christian Thought. So there are clearly slight differences, but there's parallels. Mm-hmm. You're, you've run in very similar circles uh, over the years, but you also have, I would say, quite different approaches to apologetics, even when you... When you, when you let, say, let, lay aside certain elements, there's going to be different styles that you, you take, which I think will be kind of an interesting conversation to explore those different methods, those different approaches. And then we'll get on later on in the conversation onto uh, one of Joe's books that came out, um, last year, Ruler of Kings. So we'll discuss that a bit later on and, and talk about mission and kingdom. But the first thing that our listeners who know anything about your histories will be dying to know is <laughs> what. Isn't it interesting that Joe Boot used to be the Canadian director of Ravi Zacharias Ministries International, or was it International Ministries, and then he was succeeded with a little gap in between by Andy Bannister as the Canadian director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So, you know, almost the floor is open. Would you like to share any of your reflections on that? I know that some would say this is an older conversation, but it is an interesting way. There's been, you know, there's been maybe at least a couple of years now of, uh, of sort of clear air, um maybe not so clear air, um, after people have reflected on that whole scenario of the fall of Ravi Zacharias and, and all that the kind of shock waves it sent through mission and apologetics ministries per se. Lots of sort of self-flagellation, self-reflection. Um what did you guys notice? What what are your kind of recollections? Maybe we'll start with you, Joe, as you sort of preceded Andy before it all went wrong, clearly when Andy took over, I don't know. I see
1: what you did there. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh. Well, first, I would say, look, you know, I didn't sell Andy a pass there. Um, you know, I I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can assure you that we had no idea uh, what was uh, what was under the surface. In some respects, this is uh, um, an interesting conversation for me because when I left the United Kingdom. Um, over 20 years ago now, 21 years ago for Canada. I spent two years in England working for what's called the Zacharias Trust. It was the European, the UK office of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And I was asked to go to Canada by the organization to establish RZIM Canada. That, that was my um, remit uh, and uh, charge. So after a time of prayer and consideration uh, that's what my wife and i did but because uh th- my parents were already over the other side of the world as missionaries in pakistan and this was a uh, would be going to a place where we had no family or connections and it would be you know more seas between the rest of our family it was a challenging move mm-hmm. um but we we believed god was calling us to do it uh he and he was and and we went and um i spent 5 years uh setting up really establishing um Ravi Zacharias international ministries in Canada I left in 2008 and I'd arrived in Canada in 2003 I actually committed to three years um, uh, originally uh stayed as the director for five uh, and in 2008 stepped out so that is 15 getting on for 16 years ago so with this sort of stuff breaking in 2020 was it two thousand and twenty when this all started this stuff all started yeah. coming out yeah, I think it was That's about right. then there was quite a long distance um, uh, between mm. myself and the organization, and um, that did mean that uh, you know for, for us I, I in Canada primarily i was, I, I was no longer my name was no longer primarily associated with mean, it was associated with the Ezra Institute and the Westminster mm. Chapel in Toronto and so um probably not unlike andy you know the the sort of m- the muck that went flying in various directions uh from that tragic um outcome really for the organization mm. didn't really come near my tent um because it was um it was it was it was so far gone um and obviously i'd be interested in in hearing you know mm. andy's reflections on that whole period uh, too because i'm sure that he observed um, many of the same things that I did, and that's kind of what I meant when I said you know I didn't I didn't sell him a pass. I I don't remember us having lengthy conversations um, at all about the organisation when he arrived, and there was a gap between us. Mm. And um, you know, to be candid, Aaron, um, I was pretty much blacklisted anyway. I think there was a sort mm. of uh, an unspoken or an un- certainly an unwritten embargo on me if mm. you left the organization mm. it was pretty much um you know you would be something wrong with you you'd yeah. betrayed the firm you know you you yeah. you would betray the the family firm um and so you know i was told by some on the inside that yeah there'd been conversations that you know don't invite joe to um speak mm. at uh, rzim events or or programs mm. or whatever um, and, uh, you know, sadly for me, that was true, even of my European colleagues who I'd worked with for many, many years. I, I barely heard from any of them. Um, wow. uh, uh, and I hadn't left under any kind of cloud. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> Yeah, dare I say I hadn't embezzled any funds from the ministry or anything like that I just said to, to uh to two rounds there was that, that body
1: under the floorboards we found <laughs> shortly after I, yeah.
2: oh, I could have sworn you wouldn't find that Andy the, the um, money was just resting in your account he's use a <laughs> father reference yeah <laughs> oh, I'd hoped you wouldn't find that um but um the um the, the 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 transition for for us was was about the fact that uh, I had when I arrived in Canada I had an eighteen month old child one uh, five years later I had three children under the age of six and I was traveling one hundred and twenty days a year for the ministry and uh, we did not want to continue that kind of existence um, that was the first reason. The second reason was we were feeling an increasing burden and calling to Canada, and I was spending so much of my time outside of Canada, I was beginning to wonder why exactly I was in Canada um, (laughs) if I was spending so much of it out of the country. Um, And uh, so we were feeling a calling really to the church, and that's what led to am my planting Westminster Chapel in Toronto in, in 2008 and then setting up the Ezra Institute in 2009? And the third reason is that we had become increasingly uncomfortable with the political culture, the culture of the organization. It was deeply unhealthy, um, and they were burning through presidents like I go through socks. Um, and uh, when the last one uh, left, his name was Rob Schwarzwalder, and I'd been quite close to him. Uh, It really was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were seeing things in the organization, just uh, things that didn't sit well with us. You know, nothing, anything like that emerged. uh, There was no, no even suspicion of that um but um there was an increasingly toxic we felt political culture in the organization the family firm is not an exaggeration in terms of our experience at least of what it was like constructive input was seen as disloyalty um there was a sort of <clears throat> surreptitious attempt to retool my diary to the far east uh wow. and then everything was being increasingly centralized too so that things sort of freedoms we had in canada uh, were being sort of curtailed so uh, and then the burning through of good people um, a sort of trail of human debris as one um, pastor in the states put it uh, was becoming a great concern to us so those sort of three reasons mm. and um, so I I went to the board and I went to Ravi first and then I went to the board and said it was time for me to uh, to step down um, initially I'd been stepping down into something that looked pretty secure I'd been asked to be the preaching pastor of a big church in Toronto um, and uh in the end we didn't go in that direction uh i won't bore you with the details of that discussion and how things altered and we ended up planting a church um instead um and uh you know the rest the rest is um the rest is history uh and then of course i heard later about um uh andy bannister and his ministry so i think i did actually invite him to come and speak once at westminster chapel in the early days of the plant when he just arrived and uh wanted to see his ministry thrive there. But of course I knew he'd be up against some things. And um, I'm not sure that at that age, I quite had the had the maturity. I wasn't long enough in the tooth really in ministry experience to quite know how I would have communicated concerns to an incoming person anyway, mm. uh, without it sort of sounding like baguette, uh, bad eggs or sour grapes or um or somehow you know motivated by um some sort of personal um, animus or whatever um yeah. I, I i regret a, a, a figure later on who entered the ministry. His name was dennis ignatius he he a very experienced man from um yeah. the far east lasted less than six months in the organization ended up on my mm. doorstep um in mm. East Toronto in tears um on a visit to Toronto. Wanting to meet with me and asking me why I hadn't told him um, Mm. the nature and character of the organisation, and I and and I'd been a pastor for a little while then, and I I felt pretty bad about it. But I sort of had to confess my own limitations. And you know, in your early thirties, you know, I wasn't a fifty a fifty year old man, uh, you know, like I am now or almost fifty, with um, thirty years of ministry experience behind me. I, you know, I, I you know been a vocational apologist primarily and um so handling some of those conversations would have been a bit a bit of a challenge at that uh, at that age mm. for me i'm not trying to use it as an excuse but i i didn't go around after leaving with a sort of warning tag for anybody i just you know mm. um felt that things were going in a different direction than what i wanted to focus on and and i wanted the people and the friends and the fabulous people that were scattered throughout the world—I have to say that—I I mean, I learned so much during those years. I don't regret any of mm. those years. Seven years in mm-hmm. RZIM, whether it was my European colleagues or mm. colleagues in Singapore and, and India and the United States and all over—that I learned phenomenal so organization. From. I mean, the reach of yep.
0: it was mm-hmm. just kind of vast. It was it? remarkable. Well, would you would you say then, Joe? So just before we bring Andy in to give his reflection too. Um, When you're then observed, when you've been out of Arzim and you're seeing the success continue of Arzim, because this would be, what what year was it you got out, as it were? 2008. 2008. So after 2008, there's still quite a lot of sort of currency in Arzim. It's like the premier apologetics ministry in evangelicalism in the world. Um, It's kind of where every aspiring apologist would be learning from that. They're influencing all of the student ministry uh, across the UK and presumably uh, vast tranches of the U.S. as well. It's all over the world. Are you looking at that going, amen, praise God, because good stuff is happening? Or are you going, I don't know how to think about this because I know that there's problems and I hope those problems have gone away? Or like, how do you assess that when you know you've been on the inside and you see everyone else fating it and going, this is a wonderful organization? Because that's how I would have seen it. Mm-hmm. Most other people were so shocked because they were like, that couldn't possibly happen, could it? Or how are you looking at it?
2: I think that was a challenge because different leaders within the organization handled the character of the organization differently. So some during my time um, came to the end of themselves and left. Uh, They didn't feel they could continue uh, within it. Um, Some who'd been in it from very, very early on, even as almost quite young Christians, um, and sort of venerated Ravi, uh in a way really sort of um um uh, mm. i don't want to overstate it but you know he, he couldn't put a foot wrong really it, it, it was mm. you know there was there was a degree of personality cult obviously going on especially in the north american context so some just lived with it and it was just put down to well that's um you know it's the character of the organization and uh that's the nature of it and you don't you don't question the grand pooh bar about any of these things um and um and then there were others who i saw very much struggling in the organization with their own conscience so i won't mention any a name but i sat with one senior leader in the organization and I, when i was telling him that i was decided i was going to move on um uh one of them um was two two actually one very senior said that's the right move you should do it and a few years later i learned he had left um Another one sat with a glass of wine and asked me whether he'd sold his soul. Um, he was deeply depressed uh, and um, he was in a position to know a great deal more about the internal workings than I was because I was the Canadian director. But, um, you know, even even there, even if you're senior, it's not like you're in Atlanta in the U.S. every week in on all of these, um, you know, highly, hi- highly placed uh, meetings. So, um, you know, it. Pe- different leaders handled it differently, and I suppose I just thought, well, I'm, I can't handle it in the way that these people are, um, and so I have to handle it in the own in the, in the way that I think the way God is leading and 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 calling us. Um, but I never felt any need to um, having uh, having moved on, sort of criticize the other leaders' decision for what they were doing. I, I just felt that they. They were able to work within those particular that that framework and within those constraints in a way that um, I had done for 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 certainly five years as Canadian director, but for a couple of years in Oxford in a way that um, uh, I wouldn't be able to, and I knew I wouldn't be able to long term. And so I thought, you know, now's the right moment for me to to um, to step back and to and to step out. Um, But it was, um, you know, I, I was always thankful. For the the colleagues that I had around the world, and I and um, I certainly had tremendous respect for them.
0: Mm, great, and one of those colleagues, of course, uh, one of those who came in um, was, of course, Dr. Andy Bannister. So he did. Andy, tell us, tell us how how this transition works and how you came in. And
1: yeah, well, my story that story is kind of interesting. Actually, I should have read the I should have read the small print actually when I when I when I when I, when I took over. But um, the story our, our story is an interesting one. So when I met uh, when I met my 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 wife and my Astrid in, uh, in 1997, 1st of April, 97, a day she says that date should have given her a clue. And uh, very early on in our relationship, she said how she felt God had called her to Canada. And uh, at that point, I was the most parochial Brit you could ever meet. I was afraid of flying, wouldn't get on a plane. Uh, we didn't even honeymoon in Scotland or Ireland. We honeymooned in England. And for 10 years, every time she mentioned Canada, I would dismiss it. I'd, 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 I'd poo-poo it. I'd do my best to ignore it. And she just kept praying, and I thought she'd give up in the end. And it turned out the Lord uh, kind of changed me, because through my my PhD, I began I did my PhD in Islamic studies in the early 2000s. Um, RZAM, at, at that point, were building a network of Christians who were getting PhDs in Islam. Mm. I got kind of drawn into that network and began doing bits and pieces uh, with them in, in the UK. And then one day, I vividly remember sitting in, a, in an RZAM meeting in in Oxford, when one of the uh, one of the leaders was talking about the ministry around the world, and they mentioned Australia in Canada, and it felt like at that point God putting a laser beam into my brain and going, Banister, you need to listen to this." And I remember going home and telling Astrid this, and she shrieked with excitement and dropped her coffee mug. It was the first time in ten years I had said anything positive about North America, and I reached out to the uh, I, I reached out to the then Canadian director, this guy called Joe Boot. And uh, Joe, I don't know if you remember this. You were actually coming a week or two after that to the UK. I think there was a summer school going on in Oxford. And I can still remember you and I met for dessert and coffee and Pizza Express in Oxford. And it was the first time we'd kind of met and, and chatted and seemed to get on okay. And, and You didn't you, know, have, you didn't have pizza. It was just pure. No, you just I think dessert. it was like it was afternoon thing, so we thought, but you know what, we can't just have coffee. So I seem to recall the dessert was involved. And <laughs> um and then off the back of that, I think um, you know, I think Joe, you sort of suggested that maybe I, you know, come out to Canada for a, for a visit and do a little bit of speaking and kind of see how it goes. Because you, at that point, I think were are looking at potentially growing the team. And then I vividly remember it was a few weeks after that I got this email from Joe to say, "Oh, sorry, Andy, I need to let you know I'm leaving ours at AM, um, going off to do other kind of things." And um, and so what then happened is the Canadian board went from there's this possible idea that there's a possible second speaker, another speaker on the, on the radar to now we're looking for a director and things began getting quite serious over the next few months um, quite quickly. And that resulted in Astrid and I moving out to Canada uh, in 2000 and, uh, and 10, we moved out to, to Canada. God had dealt with a fear of flying thing and stuff by then. And we had, yeah. I, I, yeah. And overall a wonderful kind of six, years out there i mean some of the stuff that joe you said i mean resonated i very quickly figured out this is a very peculiar organization you named it perfectly actually when you said it's a family business and i remember figuring out early Mm -hmm. on going okay this is unlike any other organization but as a family business and i think okay to some extent if one realizes that you can work within it i think i discovered after about five or six years actually one couldn't necessarily um (laughs) But through that time, and, and and so much good stuff is where I'd begin as well. Going, it's very similar to Joe's story. So honoured to learn from amazing folks around the world. Not so much the big names, uh, and I don't say that to be to be to be to be Jewish or anything. I mean, Ravi, I always thought was a, an amazing orator. The content I was always less impressed by, but I thought the way it was packaged was brilliant. Uh, you could probably like yeah. Michael Remsen, Amy Or Ewing, and others who I would always go. those are great speakers. They're really smart on their delivery but it was people as it perhaps lower down the food chain whose staff was really original his name's not that note so so well known i mean joe will know uh joe's phillips for example in the in, in out in, uh, in asia i learned so much from from him a name that most people never heard of because he was quiet but his his staff was so good oh. uh you know friends and things like the indian teams the turkish teams uh who i learned tremendous amounts from form really great friendships that have outlasted you know, I it myself. some of those friendships will last me a lifetime. Um, huge privilege of traveling um, and not a dissimilar story to you, actually. I think at first really enjoyed the travel before we had kids. I was doing about 130, 140 days a year on the road. And uh, when there's just you and your spouse, that that's doable. Astrid wasn't working, so she would travel with me sometimes. And sometimes she'd enjoy the peace and quiet. People would often say to Astrid, How do you cope with Andy being away so often? And her reply would always be, No one should have to live with him all the time. And, um, <laughs> but then I think a few things changed for us. So children entered the picture. And when kids came on, on the scene in 2012, we'd be married 14 years by that point. So quite a complicated and winding journey to having kids. But praise the Lord, children came on the scene. And that, again, you begin thinking, Do I really want to be away? That much of the time and also you then begin looking more to family is what i found that suddenly actually not that my parents were unimportant but they become a lot more important when you've got hmm. kids and you want those kids to know the grandparents um and then the political stuff that joe mentioned i'd been about four or five years in the ministry when really began discovering that um that that sort of central controlling aspect of RZDM that joe mentioned we be- we were going running into much more in canada we'd had quite a lot of freedom to do things in a very kind of canadian way but suddenly everything was being centralized um mm. and you you know you thought you had some some freedom to do things it turned out that you hadn't and then these sort of strange political landmines everywhere you you know you you do things that you thought were personally reasonable and rational and then they wouldn't go merely wrong but things would blow up in all kinds of incredible ways and then i don't think i've told this story on air but to go that ultimately climaxed and how we left the ministry so how we left arzid mm. was finally after you know five five years or so there we felt the lord was was giving us the nudge to begin thinking about coming home uh, a year later so we gave him we wanted to give a year's notice and we'd have been there six years so like Joe, I, I, I told, first of all, I told, I told Michael Ramson, actually, he was the international director of ministry at that point. And Michael was really positive. He was like, well, why don't you come back to come back to the UK? You can come and join the team. at OCA. we'd love to have you. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. What do I do now? Who do I tell? He said, well, next you need to tell Ravi. And then you need to tell the chair of your board. And so I told Ravi, um, when he was next through Toronto and again, Ravi really positive. He was like, well, it's great that you're not leaving us, but you'll just be relocating. And then it all went wrong. When I told, I be careful not to name names, but I told the board in Canada, and all hell broke loose. And I was told the response Mm. I got from one senior board member there was, "Oh, this is out. This is wonderful." So the UK, you know, who've got lots of apologists, are stealing our only apologist. And they (laughs) then decided a a couple of board members in particular decided to make life as difficult as possible and cause such a ruckus. That the UK board then began going. Well, Bannis, what's going on with Andy? Is he, is he trouble? Is he difficult? Is the is mm. he is he got baggage? All those kind of things that you ran into Joe on exit, mm. and suddenly every door that looked like it should swing open naturally to Oxford began closing. And then, amazingly, around that time, uh, the guy who created who set Solas up, David Robertson, uh, reached out to me out of the blue. And uh we were chatting and he he'd heard i was come back to the UK and he's like, Well Andy, why don't you come, you come to the UK, why don't you come to Scotland and run Solas? I was like, No, no, I'm gonna go to Oxford. He went, You do you do to go to Oxford, it's boring. You don't wanna go there, come to Scotland, it's exciting. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, No, no, David, that's never gonna happen. And uh, lo and behold, it turned out he was right and I was I was wrong because the whole R Z of the M thing blew up in a great political mess. And mm. Solas, which we thought was just, you know, never gonna never likely never gonna be on the cards, actually turned out to be exactly what God had for mm-hmm. us and actually i was going to say now i'm so grateful to the lord for a number of things firstly like you joe when you said all the, all the mess that bounced came nowhere near us that's not the way we should think about things or i don't I don't think about things because there was so many people hurting what happened with ours at AM, but we're still grateful we were four years clear when the whole thing exploded but also i think for me it had taken me four or five years to figure out that my passion is the you describe your passion being canada mine wasn't geography but is the local church and I thought ours them had become so big and so professional that it got totally detached from the local church. Mm-hmm. You put on these big expensive mm-hmm. events where people would come along and go, wow, but then it didn't engage on the ground. And one of the things I love about Solas is everything we do um, is driven through and with local churches. We don't put on our own events. We come alongside others and we go to tiny little places as well as the towns and the cities. And mm-hmm. I really deeply, deeply value that. But exactly as you described, then once you once you exit the family firm, um, you to yeah. some extent become persona non grata. We had a strange thing, actually, that my former Canadian colleagues, the team members, God bless them, didn't play that game. And so up until the end, I was coming back occasionally and still doing stuff in Canada, even while the rest of the organization, uh, obviously, I was on the heresy blacklist uh, somewhere. <laughs> and then obviously watched with horror when the whole thing went 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 wrong. And actually, it's going to be three years this Christmas. I remember it was the 23rd of December... Uh, 2020 was during COVID because I can remember it being a very strange Christmas and we were mm. visiting family. We had to stay in a hotel because of COVID. And I can remember mm. the interim report landing on what had happened to Arzadam and the whole, all the wheels uh, cool. came off and then just being stunned, you know, to watch what happened. And, you know, my heart went out to both the victims um, of Ravi, but then to then to smaller people down the organization, the big, the big guns, mm. the big dinosaurs largely landed on their feet but it was a little it was little people um particularly mm. those in parts of the world where they were reliant upon the funding from the center mm.
0: um, uh, it's interesting because I, I think i you and know, i first had you into um my my former employer of course um, you
1: also know what it means uh, like to I step on political landmines i do <laughs> and actually
0: news. as joe was, as joe is mentioning the burning through presidents you know i had five line managers in different line managers in six years working um, with you must be a stress which which possibly tells you not possibly about me but it's probably more uh, in the sense of mm. what what the chaos of certain leadership styles which i think were i think there are definitely parallels um in my situation too mm. with some of the things you experience in terms of questions not being um asking important critical constructive questions not being welcomed and that kind of element of mm. um well, what sometimes gets overemphasized in our day of the spiritual abuse thing but like i don't i wouldn't necessarily use that term you can use it and certainly ravi will be part of his crimes for sure but i, I think it's almost just that domineering leadership so it's kind of just going to, going to ask you because Andy, that's when i first had you into cliff it was actually earlier in 2020 i think it was march when you were teaching a module in islam and you were here you were at cliff the, the week that COVID was. I remember breaking. the signs
1: we, around Cliff College at that stage. We were, we were kind of joking going, about use, it. Yeah. Use a handkerchief and um, wash your hands. And then.
0: Yeah. And then, and then it, was, it was kind of like, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. And then by the end of the week, oh, good job, we finished the module just in time for the whole nation to lock down. Um, it, but I think that back then, the, the, that's when the stories were kind of murmuring. And I remember you'd been almost told by people within the organization, don't worry, it's nothing, mm-hmm. it's just some people you know, saying this or that. And so there's almost that sense of, you know, don't worry, everything's fine. Because no one could imagine that this organisation, which had such reach, which had such a, you know, a stoic, seemingly stoic, um, you know, leader, that could, that kind of thing could happen. It was so crazy that that's almost part of the power of the manipulation that, that we we saw. But is there something, so for both of you, I guess maybe I'll send this to Joe, and then you can chip in too. Sure. You both run these organisations now. You both have a vision. You both want to see that vision enacted. You've mentioned, Andy, being a small organization. Joe, Ezra's larger in North America, but it's kind of just getting going um, in the UK. How are you going to stop the same kind of things happening when, if God willing, those things grow? Because I imagine Ravi Zachariah started off going, right, I I have this vision to do this. Some guy, I remember, I think I've heard Ravi say this, Mm -hmm. that... um, someone told him to call it Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, or he wouldn't give him the funding or something. So this is the only way to make it work in North America. Mm. You've got to put your name at the front. And I presume he started off in a good way. He achieved loads of success, gathered people to him um, and eventually got bigger and bigger. And then, then it becomes the kind of, how do we keep it like this? How do we keep the institution intact? Mm. And then it becomes control. So how, how will you guys stop that happening in your, in your respective institutions? Where then if you get some whippersnapper, snapper Coming along, saying, "Oh, Andy, I don't like the way you do that." Or Joe, how, why do you do that, etc. How, how what's in place that you've learned from Ravi mm. Zacharias' experience, and what, what have you kind of put in place? So, uh, Joe, start with you, and then maybe Andy. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think very quickly. Firstly, and and I'd certainly be interested in Andy's reflections on this too. Um, as I've thought about it, obviously, you know, there's first of all the, the 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 tragedy of the of what happened to all the victims in all of this um, that can get drowned out. But mm. I have wondered, you know, what one of the things that, that did surprise me? Cause you've talked about how well, you know, for so long it must've been, you know, all the motives were right and everything else. But this was going on for a very, very long time. Um, and I, I have actually had to ask myself the question, you know, where was Ravi in the faith? You know, God is able to speak eloquently through Balaam's ass. Um, And, uh, you know, so um, was he a charlatan? Um, Where exactly um, was, you know, I never saw a man accountable in the life of the church. I never saw a man there who was actually a regular church member uh, um, uh, submitting himself in the life of the local church. I never actually, I think, can't recall hearing him pray out in a, in a public meeting. I don't remember him leading devotions mm-hmm. with the staff. In fact, I remember his own wife telling me that because uh, I was chatting with her about the children, um, and there's been lots of problems in his own family, tragic mm-hmm. um, breakdowns of marriages and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And she said, well, when he comes back, he never, he never takes over leading devotions with the kids. Mm-hmm. So there were obviously serious problems in the home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I won't relate another conversation that I had with, uh, with one leader, at least I won't reveal the name, you know, who, who um, ha- had some of the marital problems related to him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I've had to ask myself the question, well, where exactly was Ravi in the faith? Because mm-hmm. you can, um, it is possible you know paul makes it clear that some preach the gospel out of a variety of different motives and mm-hmm. um and you know the um the, the the enemy uh you know dresses himself as an angel of light now i'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that uh, this it's clear that god in his grace used a very fallible vessel in ravi to to reach mm-hmm. many people f- for the gospel i'm not doubting that not questioning that and i'm not saying that yeah. everything he said has to be rubbished because of um he, what uh, tr- what has come to light about his life but uh, you can go back quite a long way uh in the story and t- trying to find a touch point um i mean how true even some of these stories that i i heard time and again over a period of years in the organization how true they actually were i don't even know anymore did somebody really say to him, I'm not sponsoring this unless you call it Ravi Zacharias International Ministries? <laughs> I mean, the, the, when, when I founded the Ezra Institute, the one thing I was determined not to do was call it Joe Boot International Ministries. Um, and there's one of the lessons right out of the gate, right? Which is mm-hmm. if you're developing ministry, um, don't name it after yourself maybe don't have a Bible and Bible study notes with your, you know, named after you, (laughs) the Joe Boots study Bible. Maybe not a good idea because I'm a fallible, broken human being. Um, And uh, as uh, was it Martin Luther who said when he learned that people were calling themselves Lutherans, he said, don't name the church of God after me, foul, stinking bag of maggots that I am. Um, So, you know, we have to be careful not to too closely tie the ministry of the gospel to our own name um, Mm -hmm. in the sense that we sort of just building a platform. I I wanted the Ezra Institute, the Ezra Center to be something that would platform other speakers, other leaders in due course. One of the battles I remember in ours that I am going on the whole time I was there was successive presidents trying just to get the mission statement of the organization changed. Because throughout Mm -hmm. my tenure, even though there were offices in my time in about 10 countries, the mission statement of the organization was to further the teaching and preaching ministry of Ravi Zacharias. <laughs> yeah. And there was a total resistance to changing it. Yeah. Um, uh, and this was years in multiple offices around the world. So there, there was a lesson. Second lesson I've already alluded to. You have to be rooted in the life of the local church. I think Andy made a very, very good point there. Um, when we stepped out of ours that I am, what we wanted to do was see a church founded in Toronto and to build a team, a ministry team, uh, uh, establish a, a board of elders. Um, very quickly, I had a, uh, an associate pastor, uh, David, Dr. David Robinson, who's now the lead pastor, senior pastor of Westminster Chapel um, in Toronto. Um, the church is critically and vitally important, and I didn't want to go into my uh, future uh, ministry as somebody seen as some sort of armchair expert who flies around the world speaking at events, but has never actually cut it on the face in the life of the local church Mm. and working in the life of the local church, serving the the, the local church. Mm. So, and then of course, I think, um, accountable relationships, you know, it did actually, the the question is good because it allows me to, to remember some anecdotes that, um, a former colleague of mine in Canada, um, maybe I can say this on the podcast. I think enough distance has passed. Um, and and Andy will remember him. He was quite the character. His name was Paul. Um, and um, uh, we we used to have a joke when we when we travelled together um, about accountability because um, one of the reasons I travelled almost always with a colleague was for the purposes of accountability. Hmm. Um, and um, <clears throat> we we on this one trip we we came across an article that was an interview with Ravi in which the subject was accountability. And we're reading this thing in utter utter disbelief, About because he's referring in this article to the bellboy at the at the Pearl Continental or the Orient or the Dowie Dowie somewhere some hotels posh hotels somewhere <laughs> uh, how the bellboy recognizes him and how this is you know sort of you know part part of his accountability that they know who he is, and so we used to have this sort of joke that I'm accountable to the parakeet George in my room, you know that it was so absurd <laughs> this this. this <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, like, we could observe no like in the room. <laughs> meaningful <laughs> accountability structure in, in his life. And so, you know, the boards that I have in three countries, my rootedness in a local church, um, the fact that very often now I travel um, with, um, with my dad still uh, or, or my wife um, or, or, or a colleague, um, even in local things, as much as I uh, humanly can, um, these things, I think, you know, disappearing off for, I I always found it odd. Mm. Why do you need to write your next book for four months in, um, Bangkok Hmm. on your own? I, (laughs) I don't, I don't understand that. Um, Hmm. you know, are there not, decent, uh, retreat places in, in, in Georgia, uh, that, uh, where, where you could write the book. Do you, do you, do you want to be at home with your wife? Um, I want to be at home with, I'm a pipe and slippers yeah. man. I like home, right? I have to travel. And of course, I'm doing a lot of it again. Now my children, two of them are in university and, and, and older, but, um, uh, and because of the offices of the Institute, I have to travel, but I, I govern it. And I, and so, you know, as I look back, you know, yes, Gosh, there were some lessons there, and of course, it, it's often until you get older that you don't um, you don't recognize some of the things that are so important that uh, that need to be applied. Um, but uh, you know, I'm blessed to come from a family where church planting and missionary work, and um, you know, very feet on the ground uh, uh, environments, and uh, um, and a very godly and, and good wife who was never afraid to challenge or or, or confront and actually was a keener observer of some of the absurdities within the organization than, than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the, uh, in the travel and the apologetics Andy said that the platforms you're speaking on and the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the opportunities and you're just buried in it and you're wanting to serve the Lord. Um, but it's often our, our wives and those around us to say, but yeah, have you got this guard in place? Have you got this protection mm-hmm. in place? Have um, so lots of lessons, as Andy said, lots of things I'm thankful for. I think of my, my friend in Singapore at the time was LTJ Achandran, probably vast majority of you would never, ever have heard of him. Just a marvelous, uh, uh, Christian man, um, uh, wonderful thinker. Some of his stuff on the Trinity just transformed my thinking. So, hmm. you know, this is not to poo any of the good things, but yes, you know, how ha- is it an object lesson? um in my own life yeah i i reflect on it often and i ask myself you know by biblical standards if you can carry on a double life for 10 15 20 years mm. where are you in the faith mm. i'd certainly mm. be value andy's reflections on that
0: yeah no it's really helpful joe and, and just uh, just to kind of set up andy for your um just to set you up andy thanks that's true worry. Um I by the way, listeners, Andy has restrained himself by not making any puns related to Joe Boot's name, which I just think is kind of sanctification um in action. So if anyone's worried about Andy's character, you can see that it's clearly in action. Anyway, but I was gonna reflecting on what Joe what Joe's just saying. Um so firstly, by the way, Andy has told me before, and I'm sure you can elaborate on this, you've got a great schedule. Uh, a, a way of your wife coming into your scheduling you have a kind of regular schedule meeting where she's involved with your kind of PA to work out the schedule oh no he, you have to say yes or no to this one you sort of work that out together which is a kind of an interesting way I was also just to reflect on anything Joe said mm-hmm. by all means and leading into specifically things like I think you've both mentioned before the issues of S within rabbi zacharias international ministries and like the question you know saying of when when hopefully god when you grow and there will be more money how do you guard against mm. the way that money can change an organization because that's literally how that's what's happened to methodism for example it's what happened i think cliff mm-hmm. college money becomes right we're worried about losing the money so therefore our repute within a certain you know purview a certain overton window you can't say this or do this anymore. You can't work with those people anymore. You can't platform this person anymore because we're going to lose the money. We're going to lose our funders. And I think, you know, you've both told stories of going around, you have to kind of, you have to sort of uh, wine and dine the donors who are giving epic amounts of money. And that was one of the things that in was sort of famous for. I and mean, they often charge an epic amount for some of the events. I was an undergraduate student thinking, oh, this is great. I'm really interested in apologetics. Look at this Oxford week <laughs> of apologetics. I'd love to. How much does it cost? <laughs> £1,500. Thank you very much. And that was the budget <laughs> rate, my
1: friend. That really was <laughs> <Yeah>. a... <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a student rate. And I just said, sorry, like, how am I supposed to find that? Anyway, so any reflections on that and how you would want to build the kind of virtue into your organisation that isn't going to go that, down that route? Yeah,
1: yeah. It just, it's, it's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, to, to begin where, Joe, to go left with that question, do you know that's a question I've asked a lot, you know, about about Ravi? and his own faith. I mean obviously we don't know. You know it's particularly better for that. We 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 don't know. It's possible for people to go spectacularly wrong um no. in lots of ways. The, the the challenge with Ravi of course is because he died and then never had the chance to process it because I know at the time you know people who are a bit more sympathetic mm. pointed to you know King David you know in the old testament major major moral failing you know adultery mm. murder, and everything but of course in that case, David lived beyond that, so he was able to deal mm. with it, work through it, and we've got his reflections on that. Mm. who knows what would have happened had mm. Ravi not not died you know as that stuff came out would there would 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 the reality have come out either that was nothing there. Or oh, there was, and this was just a life gone badly wrong. My, one thing I do find myself looking at, at Ravi sometimes, Joe, and a lesson for all of us of going, I also generally believe, there are always exceptions, most people don't go spectacularly wrong immediately. So there's a, there's a, there's a little decision and then another oh. decision and another and another and another. And that, by the way, I always say to people, that's why I always say to younger leaders, that's why accountability is so important. You have to have people around you that if you mess up, then you've got people you can go to and go, I've messed up at the point mm-hmm. they can come alongside you and go, yeah, this is serious, but we can we can work with this because you have repented, because you've been honest, because you've been transparent. If you keep burying and burying and burying, the mistakes pile up and they become then mm-hmm. epic. And and obviously, mm-hmm. in, in Ravi's case, that happened. So I, I don't know um, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is the simple answer. Like you, I have a lot of questions. We were told when I was on team... You know that he was involved in a local church. There were those things there. I remember being stunned when it came out that there wasn't. Maybe by the time I was on the on the team, they'd done a much better job of sort of papering over the cracks. And we all assumed. I remember assuming that he always travelled with a travel assistant, and being quite stunned when I became friends with one of his travel assistants. It Was like, oh yeah, half the time I don't I don't go with him, which was news to was news to me. Um. So, Aaron, your question about how we build sustainable organizations everything that joe said it's funny i had a list of things i was going to say and he said every single one of them so we're sorry andy. We're, no 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 it's great that, that as, <laughs> as leaders we're thinking kind of kind of kind of similarly i mean there's a huge amount of wisdom uh,
0: and presumably those. andy just uh, uh has joe made you reflect differently on the on the banister bible that so last Oh yeah to no exactly you, you're do, you turn
1: on that now <laughs> the, the, the Banister. the Banister. well i'll tell you the thing it does make me reflect on every time because i i would oh, echo, echo totally not to have names on on minister and by the way a funny thing is actually I say funny now it's sort of dark humor that um the guy who found, David Robertson who founded Solas uh got in trouble with a with a, with a, a high profile ardalim leader who I think I probably can mention because he's sort of more or less rehabilitated So Vince Vitale. Uh, with Arzadem, had a massive go at David Robertson because David Robertson did a public, you know, critique of DM a few years before the big explosion around names. It should never be named after a person. It's a bad idea. And Vince got his nose mm. totally put out a joint and um, and refused to have anything to do with Solas. And when I next mm. time I see Vince, I, I do mean to have that conversation to go. So it's perhaps an apology uh, with respect, <laughs> oh, because David. Um, David's often right in unhelpful ways, is the way we describe David. He, he, he he's like <laughs> bull in a china shop, but the bull is often onto something. Um, yeah, so so not making about you, where I find this tough, and I'd be interested when I finish rabbiting on, maybe Joe could reflect on this, which would be a segue to the book. As a Christian author, where I find this hard is when you're in publishing, you know, you have to do the publicity thing. You have to talk about your book and your photos on the back and all this. And I hate it. I hate it with a vengeance. And what finally got me, and you've written books too, Aaron, what finally got me through it was a friend of mine who's a more experienced writer saying um, a couple of things to bear in mind. One, the kind of C.S. Lewis idea about humility of celebrate the, the thing in itself, be as pleased about your book as if you were as if your friend had written it. And then you just celebrate the, the end the end mm. result. Mm. And by the way, equally promote other people's works, talk about their works, then that helps. But then secondly was remember that you've had a Christian part you've had a publisher who's invested in you, who's supported you, who's got that thing through the door. So when you're talking about the book, you're actually respecting and honoring the work and the money they've they they've they've put in. And if you're not wanting to do it, then don't then then don't go ahead because you're disrespecting them, which is helpful. So there's the yeah. there's the there's the publicity piece, the team leadership piece that Joe mentioned, I echo that. One of the things I, I we've built at Solas that I think I'm really, really, really pleased by is we are a genuinely collaborative organization we're a small enough organization it's easy easier to do that there's three of us on the core leadership team and it pretty close to being a partnership of equals you know my name is director on the on the on the door because occasionally somebody has to make those decisions but there's a there's a there's a team leadership there we i think we've built a culture where people say what they think if my colleagues are listening to this and disagree they can email in and go so we have some spectacularly <laughs> good discussions um and i think where you can create cultures where where dissent is welcomed. Um, you actually build stronger teams. There's, um, there's, a, there's a leadership coach called Patrick Lencioni, very well-known in the of business, who's actually a Christian, wrote a book a few years ago called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And one of the things he talks about there where teams go wrong, one of the core levels where teams go wrong is where there is not the trust where people could disagree. And if people can respect one another and trust one another to go, no, I disagree, I've got a different idea. You build strong organizations. The accountability Joe's mentioned, I, I think, too, as well. But um, your your piece, Aaron, about money is interesting. You know, you are mm-hmm. right. I, you know, during my time at RZM Canada, I think my favorite years were the early years when money was a bit tighter because you had to innovate more and you didn't take so many things for granted. During the time I was there, RZM grew from a moderate-sized organization to this $46 million behemoth. And that's when the culture changed. And I think that's the thing to be very very, very, very wary of. One way of doing it, by the way, that again, just naturally, I think the way the Lord has led us at Solas, I'm very grateful as an organization. We have some big donors and we're grateful for those. But over half our funding comes from hundreds of men and women around the country who give a small amount of money each month. We've worked really hard at building up, you know, people giving three, four, five pounds a month. And they're faithful, they pray, they're engaged, uh, they're really we've got a really active donor base. Um, so that helps too. Actually, if you're not if you're overly reliant on one person dipping into a che- into their bank balance and writing mm. you six figure checks, the danger is that you can you know you just begin to get swayed and, and influenced and, and chase that. If you've got lots yeah. of I don't want to say ordinary because there are no ordinary Christians, but lots of regular people behind what you do, um, that changes things slightly. And for us as an evangelism ministry, it's exciting because we those those are also people who are making use of the materials. That were mm. producing, But I don't want to be naive. As money grows, it can be a real, a real temptation. I, got, I remember getting a lesson in that early on in my Christian life where the church I'd grown up in, somebody died and gave, left the church 200,000 quid. And I can remember the uh, torturous arguments at church meetings around that money because you had sort of half the church thought we should invest it in ministry and the other half, oh, mm. no, we need to invest it and live off the interest mm. and, and, and mm. we've got to be careful to protect the capital. And it caused huge damage I remember at the time, mm. as, a, as a 17, 18-year-old mm. watching this going, well, that's interesting. I wouldn't mm. have realised that that money mm. can actually do, if you're not careful, more harm than mm. than good. So don't mean wise yeah.
0: to that. Mm. No, re- really helpful reflections there, Andy. And, I think, and the money thing is a good pivot, actually. I mean, obviously, that is a thing that affects churches. You get pastors who are unhelpfully swayed by big donors in churches. Don't preach on this text, or don't preach that text in that way, or my tithe will be going somewhere else, and you pay for an administrator because of that tithe, et cetera, which can be very unhelpful. You get people donating with so many caveats attached to their donation that they effectively are leading the church. Because if you, if you have a, such an amount of money, it can be like, right, 100 grand here, but it has to be done in this way. That's that person basically trying to steer through their money. And you do see that in all sorts of ways with philanthropists as well. So, you know, it's something to be aware of, isn't it? But, Joe, the reason why it would be a helpful way to pivot just for sake of time, I want to talk about your
1: book. I love you, also, just, by the way you've pivoted from large amounts of money to Joe's book. So the implication is <laughs> well, the movie yeah. rights. The- exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? I, hey, guys- <laughs>
0: I have that for mind. You know, I think we talked about this on our writing episode a while back, Andy, where you get the contract for your book Comes into so my my taking Kierkegaard back to church book, and it has all this stuff about movie rights. And I was thinking, you know, I think someone probably could write a movie about this. Maybe <laughs> they will. Maybe one day, uh, I'll be up in lights, like, you know, based upon the book by Aaron, this academic book about Kierkegaard. There's this wonderful movie being made that's going to be, you know, hit Hollywood. Wrong, anyway, um, so uh, yeah, indeed. So, but Joe and Joe, Joe Joe, you and I were on a, a panel recently uh, at the kind of a uh, kind of joint. Ezra Center Christian Concern Conference, talking about kingdom stuff, which is of course one of the key themes of not only your your book but your ministry. Um, and I remember you saying one of the things we we have to recover, and indeed that was one of the other talks um, uh, by Graham Leach at the conference, was on economics mm-hmm. and the fact that though, as we right, we rightly say, there is all these problems with that we've you've observed with Arzim and how money became unhelpfully influential. Um, we also need to recover a kind of Christian view of money being not a scary thing, something mm-hmm. that we need to care about making money. And it's not bad to pay your pastor properly. It's mm-hmm. not bad to even enjoy money as a blessing mm-hmm. without it somehow becoming a love for it, which undoes stuff. So, why don't you maybe that as a pivot to talk into the wider issues of what are we missing when we don't think about something like economics? What uh, we don't think about. You know, wider issues of of what what it means to live out the kingdom of God, in in the world as the church. When we sort of privatize our faith, so Christianity just becomes about me and my faith in the Lord and building the local church, as great and important as that is. But whatever mm-hmm. goes on in the world of politics and economics, just that that's not us. That's dirty stuff that we leave to the world. Any mm-hmm. kind of reflections on that as, as as a kind of segue into your book, mm-hmm. really.
2: Well, certainly one of the things that uh, Uh, Christians are often not very good at is um, understanding the implications of what Jesus said when he said, you can't serve God and money. Um, Mm. You know, scripture doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says it's a root of all kinds of evil. Um, and the problem is not the tool of money. I mean, some of the greatest servants of the Lord were some of the richest men. I mean, look at the wealth of Job or of Abraham. Some of God's mm. choicest servants were people of great wealth. Um, but it seems they'd learned how to um, use it, to, to to govern it in terms of a particular goal and purpose. I think it might have been D.L. Um, Moody who said, God will give you millions if you don't let it stick um and uh and i think that um sometimes even within organizations you know the 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 one challenge as you pointed out is you know can a can a donor end up controlling the entire organization there's a risk right uh the other is that donations become so easy and the money is so easy as andy says that actually there's just incredible presumption there and um Hmm. People lose interest in what there are so many donors that people lose interest in, in the opinion of any donor uh, hmm. or, or, or the view of people investing in, in the work. So there's sort of a there's a ditch on both sides of the road there. Um, hmm. But I think recognizing that, you know, God gives talents um, and he expects us not to bury them in the ground and m- merely manage the uh, the the investment income, <laughs> um, but to, uh, to to invest it in the kingdom. And to be faithful with with what uh, with what God has given. Um, before commenting specifically on the book, I mean, um, one of the things that that I did to try and you know guard against some of these temptations was the um, way we structured things was that all the the rights to my books are owned by the Ezra Institute, hmm. uh, so I can promote uh, the books and, uh, without any sense of, oh, wow, this is going to line my pockets. Cause I've sold, you know, X number of books this month. I can promote them because it just builds the, the, uh, the, 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 the capacity of the ministry to do hopefully a better job. Um, the, uh, you know, we've structured it so that I'm, I'm on a salary and that salary is not affected by the honoraria. the the big Mm -hmm. US honor areas that may come in or, or, or book Mm -hmm. sales, um, whether they're good or bad. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and, and there's a, there's a benefit to that too, but we do need, um, people who are committed to the kingdom of God and who have a kingdom vision for the use of wealth. And we need Mm -hmm. wealth creators. We need wealth generators. Don't forget when we look back, sometimes romantically at, at the past and we look at some of the great names of the past, um, George Müller and Charles Spurgeon and some of these greats, um, these these men were well funded, um, and and they were well funded by wealthy people. Um, you look at the Cla- Clapham Sect. You, you cannot you cannot go almost anywhere in the United Kingdom without finding an organization or an institution where those in the evangelical world where those people's hands aren't on it somewhere. <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, even networks of churches like the Countess of Huntingdon and uh, yeah. uh, Hannah Moore, uh, Mrs. Is it more um, yeah. as work as well? Um, all Nations College in in, in my area, the um, the, um, the the Christian Mission to Jews. I mean, the, these things all over the country and these incredible buildings and facilities and organizations. These were funded by great evangelicals committed to the work of God even your um uh uh who I, a man who i increasingly appreciate these days um your um sort of uh, sanguine dane maybe not so sanguine <laughs> the <laughs> um, melancholy
0: dane melancholy yes dane
2: more really uh soren kierkegaard you know uh he his books didn't sell many copies at all he was he was you know right. some of the more philosophical stuff handfuls of handfuls of mm. when he he footed the bill for the publishing pretty much himself most of the time mm. um mm. how could he do that well actually he inherited wealth uh yep. he ended his life penniless pretty much but uh, yep. you often find when you look at the stories of these people that they Uh, were backed by wealthy people who made their ministries possible. And so I think just because we've got a bad example of how something went desperately wrong in Ravi Zacharias' international ministries, we shouldn't therefore assume that any ministry that has uh, solid donors like SOLAS... Um, obviously much more wealthy than Ezra. So anybody listening, you know, remember the Ezra. <laughs> <laughs> Transfer to your uh, standing order to the Ezra.
0: That's why our, our, our English office is a wooden
1: hut in my garden, Joe. Yes, that's, <laughs> really, that's <laughs> true.
2: No, keep supporting Solus, everyone. Um, but, um, you know, it's not that our organizations don't need money. And it is an ungodly attitude, a highly ungodly attitude to say, well, that Christian minister over there, Andy Bannister, the Lord needs to keep him humble. So let's make sure he doesn't earn more than 25000 pounds a year. And that'll really keep him on the right path. This is non this is pietistic nonsense, in my view. You can be just as tempted into to to covetousness um, and, and uh, larceny and tempted to misdirect your ministry because you're in poverty as you can face other temptations if the organization is well healed and you're enjo- enjoying plenty. So Paul says, you know, I have known uh, how to be uh in, in abundance you know and in want in in in, yeah. in in all these conditions, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so we need a kingdom attitude to wealth because fundamentally, of course, the tithe is god's tax uh the earth is the lord's and everything in it um the the world the seas and all it contains, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so it's all god's resources. And if the church is to grow and, and if um, God's people are to be blessed and if the kingdom of God is to expand and organizations like Solus that are involved in that kingdom expansion are to be able to fulfill their mandate, we need wealth generators to give money, um, mm. not, not just to line their own pockets or to um, uh, build uh, a better home for themselves and to have mm. all the foreign holidays and the speedboat and the ha- family cottage and all of that. But to also think, how am I going to invest? Not that those things yeah. can't be a blessing too. They are. They're a great blessing. And in my life, I've known wealthy people who have shared those blessings. Why doesn't your family come and use our beautiful place yeah. here for, for a holiday? Wonderful. Thank you, mm. Lord. Mm. Um, but mm. we also need to be thinking, Uh, how can we invest our wealth to advance the purposes of the kingdom of God?
0: Mm, Absolutely. That's really helpful. And and what would you say then? Because this is something we and Andy touched on Mm. briefly in a previous episode, didn't we, Andy? In terms of that problem of our lack of clarity on thinking about what the kingdom of God is. Because in many ways, uh, some would say the kingdom of God was a term that the liberals of the 20th century liked to use. Uh, in order to avoid talking about evangelism and the gospel and the church so they say the kingdom of god or missio dei in more recent language really like anything that's going on in the world we can just call it the kingdom so martin luther king a civil rights movement is the kingdom feminism is the kingdom coming and whatever in some way that's separate Hmm. from the church um, but in a kind of distinctly liberal direction quite often in your recovery of the kingdom for you know with a robustly evangelical view how how in your book, for example, do you parse those two for, especially for those who are kind of concerned, like what is the kingdom of God and mm-hmm. isn't the church advancing? Isn't that what the kingdom is?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. You look at the ministry of, of Jesus and he talks constantly about the kingdom. The gospel itself is called the gospel of the kingdom. The question mm. of the church Institute comes, uh, only a few times at the, towards the end. Um, and, uh, the uh, the the church is the called out the ecclesia. I mean, most Christians, thoughtful, mm. certainly thoughtful people listening to your podcast, will know that the 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 church, the ecclesia, is the called out people of God. The term itself mm. is borrowed from the ancient world because that was the word for a, ca- a city council, a governing council that was called out in terms of the government of the people. So the church mm. is a, a is a kind of government that's called out on mission in terms of a broader principle, the Basilea, the, the kingdom of mm-hmm. God. And we know these mm-hmm. two are distinct because Jesus, when he's addressing the the, the, the the teachers of the law and the nation of Israel, says the kingdom is taken from you, and it's given to a people who will bring forth the fru- its fruits. So the, the kingdom and the people are distinct. They're involved in one another, but they can't be collapsed into one idea. I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ritterbos is very helpful here, and I deal with this in, in my book, Ruler of Kings, that sometimes the problem has been that we've... I mean, it happened to some degree in the medieval church with the ecclesiocracy and the ecclesiasticization mm-hmm. of the faith mm-hmm. in Roman Catholicism. But there's a kind of evangelical version as well, which basically collapses the idea of the kingdom of God and the ecclesia into one. Now, we can't imagine the one without the other. You can't have the kingdom, which is where Christ rules and reigns. The kingdom of God is about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Wherever he is reigning, there the kingdom of God is. So you can't imagine the kingdom without the kingdom people who are advancing the kingdom, Uh, but you can't collapse these into one idea so that the church institute is the only place where the kingdom of God is expressed, as though my family is not a place where the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ is being manifest, Mm. Uh, where in my vocational life, the kingdom of God can be manifest. Um, And even in, dare I say, culture or political life, where the rule and reign of Mm. Christ is being seen and manifest, however weak, however fallible. Um, And that's demonstrable by the fact that there are plenty of churches today that go by the name of church that are, that are church institutes that are a very and indeed are in seminaries that are a very mm. poor representation of the kingdom of God um, uh, compared to a Christian family that is a much better picture of the kingdom. Of God. There are liberal churches, there are liberal seminaries, and we mm. could not possibly say that these are. Uh, manifestations where they've abandoned the gospel of the true kingdom of God. Um, So Mm. I think that is a critical issue of sometimes conflation. And that means that often Christians will not recognize the areas of law, politics, education, the arts, the sciences, Mm. as places where you can have a distinctly Christian view, where the kingdom of God can be manifest, because the kingdom Mm. of God is simply the ecclesia. The institutional life of the church. In fact, we sometimes even lack an expansive view of the body of Christ because scripture is written to the body of Christ, to believers fundamentally in every area of their lives, to apply the word of God in every area of life, not just mm. not just the local church institute. Mm.
0: That's really, really helpful. So this would be really, I'd love Andy to jump in here because if I can, can I invite you, Andy, out of any, I know we're all British on this podcast, so we don't like to be disagreeable, but obviously last and Ezra are doing different things, not yeah. because you completely disagree. You're actually on the same team widely, but Joe would have, presumably Joe is a theonomist, a uh, notorious theonomist. So the notion that <laughs> the bringing of the infamous theonomist, um, of the mm-hmm. law of God, recovering mm-hmm. the law of God in the way that Ezra reading out the law, that's why it's called presumably the Ezra Institute mm-hmm. and Ezra Center. Um, those things are good and they need to be sort of reinstituted in a sort of way that we're kind of harkening back to the the Puritans, uh, in this country at least, um, which is very different to how Solas, would, Solas is doing a very different kind of mission. But where would you see disagreement with the kind of stuff that Joe is doing or wanting to mm. see in terms of societal transformation? Because presumably you and Solas want to see societal transformation, but you wouldn't necessarily see it as coming in and through political transformation
1: right well this is a tricky one isn't it a, because i know you're trying to deliberately stir up disagreement and you know, actually <laughs> have had fascinating conversations there might be different emphases i think emphases is a good word and to go one of the things that's that's core to i think the, you know to solace's values well it is it's written into our values is that we want to speak well of the good work of others and so one of the things that i love actually is working in a in a gospel ecosystem you know, here in the UK, where well, you have the likes of Ezra, the Christian uh-huh. Institute, Christian Concern, you know, lots of others we could name doing good stuff in the public arena. And I think one of the weaknesses of Solas earlier on, when David Robertson founded it, David is was into so many things. And that's great. Um, but when you try and form a small organization that tries to do a 1,001 things, it usually only can do them mm. to, a, to a very sort of thin degree. And it's when I took over the, the leadership in 2016 and working with david by the way we prayed it through and went okay we really feel together as a team and a board that uh, so is being called to focus upon the evangelism the evangelism training um we have an interest politically and we we joke on our on our, on our staff calls that uh you know most staff meetings is usually the political 10 minutes when some issue will come up and oh team wade in because you've got a room full of people with strong opinions <clears throat> I would say a couple of things. Joe's point there about the kingdom of God affecting everything—you uh, know, there not being any square inch of reality that isn't got the Lord stamped over it—I would say that drives our a lot of our, our our apologetics. You know, what might sometimes be called cultural apologetics. Um, you know, that traditionally apologetics is often associated with you know here's an argument, here's the cosmological argument, and the moral argument, or the ontological. I mean, those, those are great. They're they're fun. They, they they're okay. Mm. Yeah, I think the age that we live in. I think it's far more – you get far more engagement actually saying when you're engaging with a non-Christian friend, saying, okay, you care about justice, you know, you care about uh, economic disparity, you care about the environment and those things. You know what, those are profoundly Christian issues, and the thing that you care the most about actually only really makes sense if the gospel is true. Now you can dress that up and go, well, that's old-fashioned presuppositional apologetics, you have that conversation. But I, but I think the, the richer idea of going, actually, this is the this is the kingdom of God playing out and um you know one of my favorite books on this of late you know dan strange's book plugged in magnetic faith mm. and, and those resources i think are great textbooks of how to do that we see paul do it in act 17 so i think some of that kingdom of god stuff we uh, bleeds into our apologetics that way and then i think where the emphases would come through of going In terms of societal transformation, uh, you know, Joe earlier mentioned the Clapham sect, which is phenomenal, you know, Wilberforce and actually Newton, John Newton, one of my heroes, I think Newton often often gets overlooked, but Wilberforce and those those folks with that great vision for what the Christian faith looks like when applied through society, not just to slavery, but to those other issues Mm -hmm. too, you know, uh, Wilberforce's famous line when he really got that vision uh, for Christian transformation society. God has set before me two great objects, the reformation of manners and the abolition of the of the slave trade. Um, mm. I think seeing what Christianity can do when it's when it's applied to some of the great challenges and issues in society, it's totally on board with that. Where we're called to to work as on perhaps the slightly, slightly other end of, of the of the thing and the two things go together in tandem. If you just try and apply Christian rule to society. If that's all you do, and I think I think it's I, I think sometimes organizations like Ezra are mischaracterized as trying to do that, then you end up producing Pharisaism because you get people they're who are running around being very very moral. You know, I think all of us on this in this interview wouldn't want to you know be wonderful if everyone tomorrow held a Christian view on abortion, but if that's all they held and nothing else, I'm I'm not sure if that's a mm. hollow victory. Um, What we want to do is that issue to to, to change. We talked about this on previous episodes, especially the recent interview um, with um, the head of SBUC, uh, Aaron, that we had. But Mm. at the same time, we want to see heart transformation. And when those two Mm. things come together amazing things happen. So I think mm. that's why we, the ecosystem idea I like, that you've got different men and women called to do different things of bringing the kingdom of God to bear. And it's also why unity is crucial, that those of us, you know, who are evangelical Christians, who love Christ, who love the scriptures, uh, who hold these things to be to be true, really, really true, need to find ways to work together and not be sort of, you know, throwing brickbats at each other because, well, hang on a minute, they're, they're doing this, whereas I'd rather they be doing that. That's the other mistake, by the way, we can make as organizational leaders of assuming everybody should be like us rather than going, great, how can, you know, so at Solas, we'd always be saying, you know, what are Ezra doing that we can talk about? Well, Christian Concern or, you know, SPC UK, how do we promote that, talk about that? When someone raises a hand in a and a event and asks a political question, invariably I'll go, right, you want to go and check out these folks because they're doing a great job so mm. uh, that's probably not as much disagreement as you wanted
0: no look at that listeners i tried to get i tried to cause a fight and and and
1: the good Kalarian. um well uh, i'm
0: Andy overth- is, he, he's i'm, a, I'm an old to. guy
1: joe referred to not 50 yet and it was obviously a badge of honor i'm 51 so i'm i'm old and
0: wizened <laughs> the senior so statesman I'm... in the room No, that's really, no, Andy, really a really helpful reflection actually because i think this is one of the there can be strange rivalries between different um, mission organizations it's one of the sad things you know that's always plagued the church in many ways is yeah. why there's so many so much in the new testament but by about the way the yeah new
1: on team. that very point very quickly just to, to link mm, back different. to where where, sure. where we started with you talking to yeah. Joe and i about about azadim one thing and I know, yeah, yeah. i'm i interested in joe's take on this one thing i think where for me i began to really see the problems about th- three years into working for azadim the first really sour taste was when we naively in canada tried to bring other organisations in we launched a summer school um, we went a low budget summer school because we felt there's a need for that and we naively thought oh let's bring lots of other organisations in have a really rich palette of speakers and you know getting in trouble because it was like, oh you should be using just internal speakers why are you bringing in mm. you know so and so from that organisation you know <laughs> we've got a team member who could have done that and we and and we just ignored it actually just carried on regardless because we we thought working well with others was important but yeah that sort of protectionism I think was part of the rot at ours mm-hmm. actually, mm. and so I think it's a sign of a healthy organization and a healthy church when mm. you can speak well with others, work well with others, um, yeah mm. sorry that was yeah, a, random, Joe, a random
0: aside there. no, no, fine Joe, 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 any kind of comments on that before you come, yeah come, come I, come, come I, come
2: I, I appreciate what Andy said there very much um, the you know especially when he said that you know p- people who are concerned with the application of christ's lordship. To every area of life, um, can be mischaracterized, and um, part of that you alluded to, uh, Aaron, with the really missiologically we call it the Great Reversal, uh, where you know this legacy of John Newton and William Wilberforce and these others, um, and on the continent people like Abraham Kuyper and so on. But the uh, mm-hmm. the legacy where uh, the whole idea of the Gospel of the Kingdom, Christ's lordship, and its implications in cultural life was sort of co-opted by liberals a sort of secular post-millennialism uh sort of aesthetic which <laughs> a was you know decimated by the first world war and then of course the second world war and no surprise that during that period you know eschatologies of defeat and retreat mm. uh became mm. you know very very popular um mm. culturally because there was a sense of you know that things are going nowhere and obviously it's liberals who talk about mm. uh the uh uh, culture and co- society progress yeah and mm. co opt the term kingdom and you had liberation theology and all the marxist influence there and so on which permeated missiological studies um yeah. but at root this has to be about fundamentally the heart um which in the bible is not merely your emotions um it's the totality of it's the root unity of the human person the heart the the, the, the inner mm person has to be transformed. Um, and it's out of that transformation that then every other aspect of our lives are transformed. The way I try and put it to people is look in your village, I'm in a, I'm in a village in Hertfordshire, in your village. If, if your neighbors on either side of you got converted, what impact would that have? Let's, Let's say the fathers of the homes got converted. What impact would that have on their children? And if they reach their neighbors Who's, who reached their neighbours, uh, and who started living faithfully in their family and then in their vocations. Very soon, you could find on your hands the very problematic concept of a Christian village, um, <laughs> and and then if it happened in a town, a town. And then what does the what does the Christian school teacher do? What does the Christian lawyer do? What does the Christian magistrate do? What does the Christian mm. judge do? What does the Christian politician do? Or mm. the Christian engineer do with their faith? Now that Christ is Lord of their hearts, he set apart mm. Christ as Lord in your heart, what do they now do um, as they go about their calling? And this was something Kierkegaard talked about a great deal, was it's not Absolutely. just your personal conversion, then, but your, it's that choice, that existential choice to choose oneself as God has created you. Uh, and, and as God is calling you, how then do I live as a Christian? That's a question that Francis Schaeffer mm-hmm. was asking, mm-hmm. You know, how then should yeah. we live? And so for yeah, Ezra, yeah. I guess we could say we're a bit more Schaferian. Our emphasis, our emphasis lies there, very influenced by um, the, the, the reformational tradition through Kuiper and Hermann Doivert mm-hmm. and others. But it's mm-hmm. centered in what Andy is talking about, which is fundamental commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, transformation of the heart. What does that look mm-hmm. like? It's the opposite of top-down imposition. When you think about the Kuyperianism, for, for example, and the way the Bible thinks about the spheres of family, church, and state, to just give three examples, mm-hmm. um, those areas are to be submitted and and uh, surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, and it, and you can't impose top-down uh, the the faith and whip people into, into it. They have to be one into it. And this is, of course, a, one of the typical mischaracterizations as well of of a, a sort of theonomic perspective which is just about recognizing the resources of god 's law for kingdom work into this mm. sort of idea of a Christian Taliban going around imposing, <laughs> you know, um, uh, God's law. Shall and everyone... we,
0: uh, for Christians, yeah.
2: No, it's recognizing the gift of Torah, as Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Burnside, one of our fellows, would say. It's, it's this God's mm. gift. This is the, the path of holiness. This is the way of life, not the source of life. As Andy rightly points out, some sort of Pharisaic view that if we just obey the following propositions and commitments, mm. you know, we're all right it's it's mm. the way of life this is the way walk ye in it to qu- quote the mm. the king james this this being transformed into the image of his son, and then it's mm. just simply asking the question you know we would say that our work as Ezra is about worldview, world and life view mm-hmm. and the development of a cultural apologetic that applies to every area of life, and as we enter a time you know civilizationally where the battleground is so much in the area of law and education and politics and um This recovery of a Christian mind, a Christian way of thinking rooted in the Lordship of Christ for all of life, I would say becomes part of what I would describe as evangelization. So we need a focus on evangelism. We always need personal evangelism and giving that defense for anyone who asks the hope that's in us. We also need evangelization, where as we apply the fullness of the kingdom... We're changing the plausibility structure within the context of our culture, and that changes actually people's receptivity to the gospel. Mm -hmm. A simple illustration would be if a culture no longer believes that there are uh, such things as fathers um, Mm -hmm. and family, um, how do I even begin to grasp the idea that God, the holy family, father, son, uh, and of course the Holy Spirit – um, and that God is my father. If I've got two mums, and there's no such thing mm. as the f- fundamental mm. distinction mm. between male and female. That that somehow mothers and fathers are just interchangeable, and actually we should ba- abandon even the use of the word mothers and fathers. Mm. Mary Abischat, in her important study "How the West Really Lost God," talks yeah. about the reciprocal relation between. We often think of when people stop believing in God. Uh, um, st- uh, stop believing in God. The family collapsed. Partially true, she says, but it's reciprocal. As the family collapsed, people stopped believing in God. And you can see how that would be uh, reciprocal because, as image bearers and the family as God's creational institution, the first one that we see there. We're, the, the, the plausibility structure our, of our lives is built around something that says something about the nature and character of God. And if that's yeah. not in place as an apologist, you've got an awful lot more work to do before you can say, have you heard about Jesus? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, Because all of that background is missing. Um, and so that's really, of course, part of the task of mm-hmm. Christian apologetics. And mm-hmm. so no, I entirely agree with what Andy has said. That, you know but sometimes we are called to labor in a slightly different end of the vineyard same vineyard we may have a yep. slightly different emphasis because not every organization can do it all we all need to have a particular mm. focus and uh, it's mm. working together mm. i think at those mm. things that uh, gives us a maximal kingdom impact that's mm. helpful
1: one thing I, I i would add aaron before you jump in with a question mm. to, 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 mm. to what joe uh, said that you know the other thing that struck me when you describe the the cultures of, as, as a battleground which it is I mean, it's always been a battleground but it feels like i think more of a battlegrounds you know the, these days i mean for a long time people have described the west as a cut flower society that the flowers that have grown from the christian worldview you know have bloomed we've cut off the roots and they're now looking increasingly desiccated and dried um but given that it is a battleground i think for a long time people are a bit perhaps more nervous about what does it look like if we talk about you know applying the christian faith to some Mm. of those bigger societal questions, you know, economics, family, justice, and so on and so forth. I think now I'm more inclined to say to people who are a bit nervous about that, everyone else is bringing their worldview very much into the discussion. So if Christians are the only ones who aren't, then we're (laughs) going to lose by default. It's about the old saying, Mm. isn't it? You know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And um, Mm. if there's a battle of worldviews, you don't show up at a battle of worldviews without a worldview um and so sometimes i think there's a degree of encouraging christians going we are not alone we are not the only ones wanting to bring our values into public square the different squares we believe they are god's values and not they're not just merely interesting or even just nice mm. or effective they're they're deeper than that, but I think historically Christians for a long time. I mean, I, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s where there was enough of a Christian legacy and culture that I think we could get a bit lazy. We could sit mm-hmm. there and go, "We haven't got to fight the, 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 these battles because we're still yeah. coasting on the on the momentum of a uh, uh, I don't want to say Christendom, but if, you know, for one of a better word, Christendom." Um, now the the coasting has has, has ended. Not merely as the engine in the back of the boat no longer going, the boat has come to a halt. So I think there's mm. the things that you talk about become ever more important i think that evangelism evangelization is a really helpful observation actually mm, but sorry i've yeah. jumped in aaron you're supposed to be interviewing no us. that's I've fine, no that's, fine. So.
0: no that's 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 great Andy. i think we probably need to uh bring the um bring the behemoth the 747 into land and you don't um make those anymore you're 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 a bit out of you know what's the
1: they don't make A three eighties anymore. Actually, it's very depressing.
0: Do they not? No. And they don't do Concorde anymore, which was a British national treasure. Twin
1: engine Cessna down onto the.
0: Indeed, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever we have, whatever this flying thing that we, we're in right now, this balloon uh, is. We'll bring it down. <laughs> I'll start chucking Certainly out. Certainly full of weight.
2: hot air. Anyway, so balloon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. No, so, um, but I thought just get an opportunity. We've heard some great stuff about both Solas and. Um, and Ezra. would be great. To, Joe, Any, anything you, you want to point people to? Because mm. you mentioned cultural worldview. I know there's a cultural worldview academy. Uh, obviously, there's your book, which we'll put in the uh, show notes. I've, I've done a review of that book, which I put in there Ruler of Kings Toward a Christian Vision of Government. I'd really recommend that. Joe's also got a, a larger book called Mission of God A Manifesto of Hope for Society, which kind of expands even further upon those kind of ideas. So, um, again, what links to those in the show notes, but Joe, what, what can we, um, what can we be looking forward to in terms of getting involved with Ezra or kind of promoting or whatever, what, what, what's going on with Ezra in the
2: kind of near future? Thank you, Aaron. That's very kind um, to let me say something just quickly about that. We actually just had our our, our first ever conference in the in the in the UK, which was encouraging—a mission of God conference that they're called that.
0: Terrible con- speaker lineup, unfortunately.
2: Though. We had a great speaker lineup, um, absolutely stellar, and we appreciated the fact that you were there, Aaron, and uh, gave a gave a wonderful uh, a talk on a shameless biblical living, which was uh, which was fantastic. Um, Uh, basically uh, what we do as well as you know the work of cultural apologetics engaging the culture is we try and equip and resource christians to think christianly and um that primarily happens through our small publishing house ezra press our journal called jubilee um we're we're developing an online learning portal at the moment uh, as well and um through in-person training programs which we think are really important because they they can be so transformative Um, So I I just wanted to mention specifically the Cultural Leadership Academy. Uh, uh, It's an international program. So it's the International Cultural Leadership Academy. Um, It's happening in the United States in the summer. And um, uh, I'd really want to encourage people to check that out. Um, Our website is uh, ezrainstitute.com, ezrainstitute.com. And you can find out about our programs and our resources. And uh, we have a a podcast, not as auspicious as this one, but we have a podcast called uh, The Podcast <laughs> for Cultural Reformation um, uh, that comes out every Wednesday, uh, where we sort of tackle all of the uh, the these the sorts of issues that uh, we talk a lot about, the Lordship of Christ, the Kingdom of God, and how to think Christianly about these various different areas of life. Um, so we'd encourage people to maybe tune into that. But as our, our worldview training program uh, for 19 to 39-year-olds, so aimed at the younger generation. If you want to come to that and you need help, then you can approach us for um, bursary support perhaps uh, and and help to to get there. Also, I would say keep your eye on the website because we are hoping, praying, we're working on it right now, that we will be launching a Worldview Youth Academy in the UK Mm. next summer, which will be aimed at 14 through uh, 18-year-olds to grapple with biblical worldview and a cultural apologetic in terms of this idea of the kingdom of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ and what that means for all of life. In fact, I hope that uh, the two of you might be interested in in, in helping us along with that uh, as faculty and so on. So I'll, I'll obviously be in touch with you about that. But um, we're, we're hoping to to roll the first one out next year. And because we haven't finalized the week and the, uh, uh, and the location yet, I can't give that to you. But if people watch the website, EzraInstitute.com, they can learn about that. We're excited about that because we don't think just yet that anybody's quite in that space in, in, in the UK uh, with that younger generation trying to give that yeah. holistic worldview, um, uh, Lordship of Christ, cultural apologetic, and we think it's urgently needed, and partnering with guys like you will be uh, really important for that. So um, keep an okay. eye out for, for those resources. Thank you for letting me say something about them on, on, your, no uh,
0: on your show. Well, we know you're going to send us a very large honorarium. For your, <laughs> supposed to go the other way. We're supposed to give you an honorarium, but we're expecting a very low. So, um, so really, really great to to hear all of that stuff. And and your listeners, please do. Check out the Ezra Center. It is doing something very different. There's nothing quite like it. Actually, there's also nothing quite like Solas. So both excellent organizations, both excellent such a directors.
1: Diplomat, Aaron, such a of diplomat.
0: course. I'm very winsome. See, I'm very winsome <laughs> when I'm in the host chair. Um, uh, <laughs> um and actually, Jilla, you know, I think it's really been this has been a really fascinating conversation just to see the that journey of you both having been under a very different kind of apologetics organization, seeing the way that God has led you both to in different directions. And yeah, as you both say, you're working at in the, in the same vineyard at different ends, um, and you know it's great to see what God is doing. So I'm excited to be working with both of you in different capacities. And you know, Amen. And and, and please, listeners, do go and check out, go and support them. I would say go and support Part of the Gaps. Send us some money, but actually, you know, <laughs> go and uh, go and send these guys some money, um, and see see your work sewn into the kingdom. And uh, by all means, you'll be praying and, and connecting with the work of Ezra and Solas, because it's, it's really wonderful and it's such an important time uh, for the church, for the mission of the kingdom at this time, we need these organizations to be flourishing and to be doing well. So as my children gradually, uh, knock down the door uh, of the room where i'm trying to uh host you know. a podcast from but the barricades are coming in i better bring this into a land so um by all means yeah thank you so much i've been aaron edwards this has been andy bannister and joe boot and this has been part of the gaps of course and we hope to uh, see you next time god bless bye bye